we also had a testimony in this week uh, by email, one of our members suffering from asthma, uh, having several medications, and has, again, this is for several years this has gone on, but after prayed, being prayed for at the healing service and gone back to the doctors, pretty much given all clear and uh, healthy and free from that ailment. God is good. So God is among us. God is doing good things. And tonight we've been looking at, we've take, taken a month really to look at the theme of the Holy Spirit from the book of Acts. And we're going to continue on in Acts. We're going to be looking at some other themes. But this is the last week we're looking at the whole theme of the Holy Spirit. And if you want a title for what we're talking about tonight, my title is Naturally Supernatural. Okay, let me uh, start by reading a note from Granny. This is a note from Grandma to her, to her family. She said, I have to tell you a story. The other day, I went up to the local Christian bookstore and I bought a Honk If You Love Jesus bumper sticker. I was feeling particularly spiritual that day because I'd just come from a thrilling choir performance followed by a thunderous prayer meeting. So I bought the sticker and put it in my bumper. Stopped at a red light in a busy intersection and I kind of lost in thought thinking about the Lord and how good he was. Uh, and I didn't notice that the light had changed. But it was good that someone else loved Jesus because if they hadn't honked, I would never have noticed. I found that lots of people love Jesus. While, why? While I was sitting there, a guy behind me started honking like crazy. And then he leaned out of his window and said, for the love of God, go, go. What an exuberant cheerleader for Jesus he was. Everyone started honking. I just leaned out my window and started waving and smiling at all these loving people. I even honked my horn a few times to share in the love. There must have been a man from Florida there because I heard him yelling something about a sunny beach. I saw another guy waving in a funny way with his kind of middle finger stuck up in the air. I asked my teenage grandson in the back seat, what did this mean? And he said it was probably a Hawaiian good luck sign or something like that. Well, I've never met anyone from Hawaii, so I leaned out of the window and gave him the good luck sign back. A couple of people were so caught up in the joy of the moment that they got out of their cars and started walking towards me. I bet they wanted to pray with me or ask, what church do you go to? But that's when I noticed that my light had changed, so I waved at my sisters and brothers, grinning, and drove off through the intersection. I noticed I was the only car that got through the intersection before the light changed again. I felt kind of sad that I had to leave them there after all the love we'd shared. So I slowed my car down and leaned out of the window and gave them all one Hawaiian good luck symbol, just for the last time as I drove off. Praise the Lord for such wonderful people. Love, Granny. You know, we're part of a movement which is a global movement. It's called Pentecostalism Charismatic. We're a charismatic Pentecostal type church. It's been a movement that's been going for about 100 years. And now they, are, they represent the biggest churches and the fastest growing churches around our world. And I'm excited to be part of that movement. I believe passionately in those truths about the power of God and the Holy Spirit. However, in the middle of that movement or on the edges of that movement, should I say, there are those who, I believe, discredit Christianity by the way they behave and act. They're flaky. They don't give Jesus a good name. They make things look weird and super spiritual. My plea to you tonight is that we would not be a church like that, but that we would be a church that is naturally supernatural, I believe, like Jesus was. You have people acting in an uncontrolled way and blaming it on the Holy Spirit. You have people using jargon in the way they talk about God rather than using plain language. You have people blaming everything on the devil. 
Oh, I've got a lustful thought. He was a demon of lust. No, you're a pervert. <laughs> They're kind of hype, hyping everything up and unrealistic about things in life. Not that we should restrict our lives to you know, things around us, but there's an unrealisticness about it and there's a hypeness to it that I believe discredits God. There's a lack of credi- credibility. There's an emotional emphasis rather than a reasoned emphasis. And I think you need both. But some have ditched reason and said, just have a blind faith, be emotional. That's the kind of bit of charismaticness or charismaniacness that I believe discredits God and is so unlike Jesus. On the flip side, I believe passionately in the true power of God in true charismatic theology. I believe that we are called to be naturally supernatural. I believe our role model, rather than allowing the charismatic movement or some of the charismatic movement to be our role model on how to operate in the power of God, rather we should let Jesus be our role model on how to operate in the power of God. Because when he did it, it was very cool. So let's look at Jesus. In the three years of earthly ministry, Jesus gave us a model. I see in Jesus' life two great tensions and balances. On one hand, he was incredibly normal, natural. On the other hand, he was miraculous and supernatural. But they were both there. Jesus was very normal. He looked like a normal person. He drank and he ate like the people around him. He loved parties He dressed like the people in the lands. He worked a job like those around him. He grew up in the back of beyond town. In fact, in Isaiah 53, speaking about Jesus, it says that um, in verse two, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus was just so normal. I mean, remarkably, there was no glowing halo above his head signifying that's the Messiah. The guy with the glowing halo and the kind of flowing gown and the long Goldilocks kind of thing. I don't think that was Jesus. Jesus worked in a building site. You seen guys who work in building sites? They're buff. Not kind of flowing gown and long. No, Jesus was buff. You see, when Jesus got angry because of the way they were misusing the temple and he kicked them out of the temple, they were intimidated by Jesus. He's buff. Jesus was incredibly normal looking, normal acting, normal living. And here's the thing. He was popular with the unreligious, with the common people. But he was very unpopular with the religious. It's interesting. Yet so often churches are the opposite way around. Churches are popular with the religious and unpopular with the common people. That's so unlike Jesus. So on one hand, Jesus was incredibly normal. But on the other hand, Jesus was supernatural. You know, his birth was supernatural. When Jesus was born, he was born into the backdrop of hundreds of prophecies predicting his arrival. There were over 300 prophecies speaking about who the Messiah would be, where he would be born. And you know, most of those prophecies were totally out with his control. It wasn't like he lined his life up in order to self-fulfill the prophecies. Most of them were out with his control. So where he would be born, he had no choice in, seemingly. The political environment to which he would be born, 
the surroundings around his birth, who his parents would be, how he would grow up and how he would be taken in exile to Egypt in his childhood, how they would crucify him, and how they would gamble for his garments at the foot of the cross, who he would die beside, whose tomb he would be laid in. All these were predicted in great detail hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. His life wasn't an accident. His life at birth was supernatural. Dr. Charles Riley said about these prophecies, he said that according to the laws of chance, it would require 200 billion earths, populated with 4 billion people in each, to come up with one person whose life could fulfill 100 accurate prophecies without any errors in sequence. And yet the scriptures record not 100s, but with 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ's first coming alone. Jesus' arrival was supernatural. His earthly life began and ended supernaturally. Uh, Peter Larson said that despite our efforts to keep him out, God intrudes. The life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. Jesus entered our world through a door marked no entrance, and he left through a door marked no exit. Jesus, his start and his finish were utterly supernatural and miraculous. In his life and ministry, you read the Gospels, you see the supernatural at work all the time. In the Gospels, we have nine recorded miracles where he conquered nature. He was, the miracles were contrary to the laws of nature. Things like walking on water, things like feeding the five and the four thousands, things like finding the coin in the fish's mouth. We see Jesus operating in supernatural miracles, water into wine, nine miracles over nature. We see 20 miracles recorded in the Gospels where he healed the sick. We see lepers completely cleansed instantaneously. We see people with blindness healed. We see the deaf hearing and the mute speaking and the cripples walking. Jesus performed incredible miracles. We see three recorded resurrections, not including his own resurrection. There was Jairus' daughter, the ruler's daughter. Uh, We see the widow uh, actually in the funeral procession with her only son dead in the coffin, and Jesus opened the coffin and called the son to life. We see Jesus' close friend Lazarus, who Jesus resurrected. We have four exorcisms recorded in the Gospels, where Jesus cast demons out of those who were oppressed and possessed, set them free. Now, that was not all the miracles he did. That's literally just the tip of the iceberg. In John 21, 25, it says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were put down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. Jesus performed great miracles. There were many times in the Gospels where it says, and he healed them all. Now, you don't hear about all their stories, but there would have been mums in there who were praying to God for their sons or daughters who were dying, who would have been healed. And there could have been a novel written about that one alone. And there would have been people who would have traveled long distances and experienced miraculous healing. You'd have had all sorts of stories. And I, I would dare say there'd been thousands upon thousands of those experiencing God's power in their life. You say, well, Peter, that's your Bible. Your Bible has an agenda. And I want to say that all books have an agenda, actually. And the Bible does have an agenda, but it's a safe agenda. Its agenda is to promote truth and record accurately the great events around the life of Jesus. But I also want to say that outside of the Bible, these miraculous claims were endorsed 
by secular historians or Jewish historians writing about the events of Jesus' life. In all, there are 45 secular references to Jesus Christ that are nothing to do with the Gospels. People writing, just history writers of their time, recording the facts. Now, a lot of these people had no Christian belief at all. In fact, many of them were hostile towards Christians and towards Jesus. And even though they may have disagreed with Jesus and the Christians, they don't disagree with the historicity of the accounts that they wrote. Here's a couple of quotes from some secular writers of the time. Pontius Pilate, in the Acts of Pontius Pilate, said this about Jesus. At his coming, the lame will leap as a deer, and the stammering tongue will clearly speak. The blind will see, the lepers will be healed, the dead will rise and walk. Josephus, speaking about Jesus, it says, now there was about that time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of surprising feats. And then there was a record in the exalted writings of Julius Africanus. Cool name of a book, huh? And he records the darkness that came over the whole earth at the time of the crucifixion. And he says this, Phygeon records at the time of Tiberius Caesar at the full moon that there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour till the ninth. If you read around that, the passage that that excerpt's taken from, he describes exactly when that took place. It took place during the Jewish Passover, exact time that Jesus died. And that's, we know that from the Bible, that there was a darkness came over the face of the earth as Christ was on the cross. But here outside of the Bible, we have secular writers describing the same events, but from a non-religious perspective. I believe that the supernatural surrounded Jesus Christ's life. Just as he was so natural, so normal, he was also so supernatural. You know, you cannot even be a Christian. You can't even be saved unless you believe in the miraculous. Did you know that? In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says this. This is how you get saved, according to the Bible. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The Bible says to be saved, you're going to do a couple of really important things. You've got to have a deep conviction in your heart that Jesus, he died for me, and God resurrected him. That's a conviction. It's not a hunch. It's a deep conviction. In fact, you base your life on it. And furthermore, there's got to come a declaration at your mouth saying, and I'm not only going to like that guy, I'm going to make him the Lord of my life. Being a Christian means you're saying, Jesus, you are Lord. And not just generally he's Lord of the universe, but specifically, you're Lord of my life. So I want to encourage you tonight. I don't know if everyone here is a Christian. I don't mean you are born in Britain or christened as a kid. I mean, you've given your life to Jesus. And maybe some of you here tonight haven't taken that step yet. And I would encourage you, if you've never taken that step tonight, why don't you do what the Bible says here? Why don't you trust in the one who died for you because you're a sinner and so am I and we needed someone to pay the price for our sins. And he was our substitute. He died in our place. He took the punishment we deserve and on the third day he rose again. That's a big claim, but I believe it's a true claim. And by putting your faith in him being risen and then by making a commitment to him and allowing him to be authentically the Lord of your life, that's what the Bible says it means to be saved. So you can't even be a Christian without believing in the miraculous. 
as Henry Morris says, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. And if it did take place, then Christ is God and the Christian faith is absolute truth. I believe Jesus had these two great tensions in his life. He was natural. He was so normal in the most incredible way. But he was also supernatural. And this for us is how we should be living our lives. I believe that Jesus' ministry didn't just, wasn't just contained to those three years of earthly ministry. I see Jesus' ministry continued, in fact, has gained momentum in the previous 2,000 years. This brings us to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, how it all began, how what we're sitting in today and enjoying together all began way back then before the world was impacted. At the earliest days of the church, here we find Acts chapter 1 verse 1, and this is how Luke introduces the book of Acts. He says this, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Say, began to do and teach. As far as Luke, who was writing the book of Acts, was concerned, the the gospels were just the beginning. Those three years of earthly ministry, that was just the beginning of what Jesus began to do and teach. And the the book of Acts is now a continuation of Jesus' ministry. Even though he wasn't there in, in physical presence, his spirit among his people was still continuing the ministry. And in the same way, I believe that God wants to continue this ministry of being naturally supernatural among his people. So we see that the book of Acts is all about the continual ministry of Jesus among his people. Jesus' departing words to his disciples, recorded in Matthew 28, 20, says this. Jesus said, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus was saying, physical, I'm heading up. I'm ascending to my Father. And in one sense, Jesus and the Father are on the throne in heaven. But in a very real sense... He's right here in this room. That's called the Holy Spirit. When when you experienced the Holy Spirit in the worship there, when you felt his presence there, that wasn't like, oh, that was the Holy Spirit. Oh, thanks God for sending the Holy Spirit. It's, It's more accurate to say, that was the Holy Spirit. Thanks God. Because that was God. (laughs) That while Jesus is on the throne in heaven, He's also in this room by his spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. According to Acts chapter 16, verse 7, we see the two phrases, the Holy Spirit and the spirit of Jesus, used interchangeably. So when you felt the Holy Spirit touch you in this meeting, I want to tell you, that was Jesus who walked this earth three years ago. Sorry, for three years, 2,000 years ago. That was him. He touched you. Wow. So it wasn't like, oh, thanks Jesus up there for the Holy Spirit down here. Why are you separating them out? He, the Father, Jesus, the Spirit, they're all one and the same trinity. One, three, yet inseparably one. Touched by one, touched by all. It's the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' ministry now continues through his people by his Spirit. Now here's a big question. You see, for Jesus... Miracles, oh, that was okay, because he's God. <laughs> and, you know, he created the world. It's for him to heal a few sick people and fix some things that he made in the first place. It's not such a problem. So we can understand, all right, 
Jesus did all those miracles because he's God. But that doesn't help us much. But I want to say to you that that's an inaccurate way of thinking. The question is, did Jesus do the miracles out of his divinity? And I believe the answer is no. Let me explain to you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. It says, Paul writing about Jesus, it says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Say, emptied himself. Taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Here, this Bible, the Bible he's talking about, the incarnation, where God, the creator of everything, took on flesh. Jesus Christ is one and the same as God, the creator. Inseparable. Always has been, always will be. Jesus always has been God. He hasn't always been a man. 2,000 years ago, he became a man. That's called the incarnation, where God became a man. Emmanuel, God with us. This is what the Bible's saying here. But then notice it says, but he empties himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. Even though he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself and he took on the form of a bondservant. That word emptied is the Greek word kino, which means to abase, to neutralize, to make of none effect or of no reputation. And here's what I believe this is saying, and I'm convinced of this. That while Jesus Christ is totally divine, when he became a man, he restricted his activities to being that of a man. He abased himself. He neutralized his godness. He didn't operate out of being God on earth. He operated as a man who is God, but he restricted his activities as God, and he devoted himself to living totally as a man. It wasn't like when one day, you know he wasn't making ends meet with his carpentry business, so oh, money's a bit tight. Do you know what? No one's looking. Money. Right, he, came, he didn't just kind of, no one's looking, I'll just be God for a bit. Money, right? No, he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He worked hard. He completely restricted his activities to being a man, even though he was totally and utterly fully God. He made a choice to restrict his activities to being that of a man. That's why we see Jesus performing no miracles until his baptism, when the Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove. Because he wanted to restrict his activities to operating the miraculous as a model for how we would operate in the miraculous. We don't operate in the miraculous because we're God. (laughs) Miles from it. We operate in the miraculous and we see miracles in our lives and through our lives because of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus deliberately restricted his activities to the same. So Jesus was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. This Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove. From that point forward, you see a record of miracles. Shortly after that, he went into the wilderness and was tempted. He came from the wilderness, went back to his hometown in Nazareth. In Nazareth, he stands up and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me too. See, I'm, a, I'm fully God, I'm fully man, but I'm restricting my activities to that of a man. And the Holy Spirit has now come upon me, and through the Holy Spirit, he's anointed me to preach, heal, open blind eyes, set captives free. Isn't that amazing? So that's why Jesus comes and turns to us and says, 
In John 14, 11 to 13, Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. That's amazing. You just read what I read. That's God throwing the gauntlet down. That's amazing. That's mind-expanding Bible verse right there. Jesus says, the things that I'm doing, all those miracles I listed earlier, you could do all them. And all the ones that are recorded about that there wasn't enough room to write all the books about, all them too. And greater things than these shall you do. Come on. What a challenge. God is throwing the gauntlet down. You, you should sing a song about that. <laughs> that is incredible. Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm God, but I didn't do the miracles because I'm God. I did the miracles because as a fully man, I restricted my godness, even though I still remain God. And I operated as a man under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And do you know what? What's the difference between me and you? Because you're people under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So you can see the power of God to the same extent. That's incredible. That should raise your horizons. How could you live, how could we live as Christians and expect things to just be normal? We should expect the supernatural to be our norm. I'm glad you're so enthusiastic about that revelation, but uh, it's true. Okay. Let's go into the book of Acts then and look at how this actually, what it looked like. How did this impact the early believers? How did it look? How were people's lives changed? Okay, let me give you a number of things the Holy Spirit came to empower us to do. Firstly, the Holy Spirit gives us power to witness. It says in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my Father has promised. For you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. This was Jesus commissioning the disciples recorded in the early, chapters, the early chapter of, of Acts. And he, here he's saying, wait until you receive the power from the Holy Spirit and you'll be my witnesses. Now you imagine how they were feeling. They've just spent three years with Jesus. They've seen the miracles. They've given their all to follow Jesus. I mean, they've, they've sacrificed businesses. They've done everything to give everything to follow Jesus. And for three years, they followed him. And then at the end of that three years, they see him crucified. And they're afraid. And they anticipate that they'll be next. And you can imagine emotionally having given everything and having such high hopes of who this person would be. Their hopes were dashed. They were emotionally at an all-time low. But then three days later, they see him resurrected. Can you imagine what that looks like? They've gone from emotionally the bottom of the bottom, and now they're kind of, you've got to peel them off the ceiling. They're so excited. They're blown away. Jesus is alive. They're absolutely elated. Everything he said over that last three years has come back like a flood. It all makes sense now. And they're so pumped and excited. But that wasn't enough to change the world, folks. If zeal had been enough to change the world, these guys would have qualified. They were severely zealous. <laughs> they were impacted totally by what they had seen. They were witnesses of the resurrection. 
But I want to say to you that zeal is not enough to change the world. Even with all their zeal, Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for my Father has promised. Because you will receive power to be witnesses. You need more than zeal to be a witness. We need more than zeal to change Edinburgh. We need more than an impact of, you know, kind of an understanding of who God is and a zeal about that. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. These Jews, 120 of them waited. The Holy Spirit came and the church erupted in growth. Within 280 years of this point, Christianity had become the world dominant religion within 280 years of those statements. In, a, in the Roman Empire, which at that time had 50 million people living in it, an estimated 50 million people, 7 million of them were Christians. These were 7 million people who were following Christ in a time where it was dangerous to follow Christ, a time when they were seeing their leaders being fed to the lions, where many times Christians were imprisoned and separated from their families and lost their property. It was dangerous being a Christian, it was risky being a Christian, but nevertheless, Christianity spread like wildfire. Here's a chart of how it spread since then. Here we see at AD 100, there was one person on earth to every, sorry, one Christian on earth to every 360 non-Christians on earth. We see that increased to 1000 AD, where there's one believer to every 270 people on earth all the way down to the year 2000 where it's recorded in the year 2000 there's one believer to every 9.3 people on earth. Now we know that one third of our world population would claim to be Christian. But when the, and this is a tenth we're talking about here, one in nine. So what, what we're talking about here is these are not people who just claim to be Christian or have some loose affiliation to church, but these are the people who are actively going to church, reading their Bible, trying to be acting out their faith, living for God authentically. That's the one in 9.3. So we see there's been a rapid, even bear in mind, that's an, if the population has stayed the same, that would be impressive. But bear in mind the population at the time of Jesus, according to the Time magazine, was 140 million people in the world. Today it's 6 billion. So in, a, in an accelerating population, the Christian church has rapidly grown and taken ground even against its acceleration of the population. Every year, 27 million people profess faith in Jesus Christ. That means today, 73,000 people give their lives to Jesus. Every day, thousands of churches need to be established around the world to simply cater for the new birth growth every day. In 2002, the U.S. Center for World Missions revealed that more people became Christians in the 10-year period between 1987 and 1997 than had in, in the previous 2,000 years. Church leaders gathered in Jordan in 2003 unanimously reported that between 80 and 90% of people turning from Islam to Christianity had had personal visions of the risen Jesus. In China, 25,000 people become Christians every day. 2002, the church in China was declared to be the largest national church of any country in our world, despite being the fact that the church is illegal, despite decades of communist opposition, the church has become dominant. In India, between November 2001 and December 2002, one million Talits, the poor caste of the Indians, came to faith in Jesus. Many missionary organizations were doing what they could simply to try and cater for these new believers. Operation Mobilization alone started 720 churches just to try and keep up with the growth. 
we see God has been at work greatly. The Holy Spirit gives us power to witness. How is Destiny Church Edinburgh in any way going to make a dent in this city? Wait until you receive power. It's not our zeal. It's not our clever marketing. It's not our accurate understanding of God. We'll do all that. It's the power of the Holy Spirit on top and beyond of all that we can do. All right. The Holy Spirit gives us power to speak in tongues. Acts 2, 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. We talked at length about this gift you know, a few weeks ago, and I would encourage you, if you missed that message, we talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of this month. All the messages are available for free download on the internet. Please make the most of that facility. But just to say that this is a great gift, that when, uh, when I was filled with the Holy Spirit when I was 15, I remember my friend laying hands on me. I had this big experience of the Holy Spirit filling me, and before I knew it, I was speaking this language I'd never learned. And ever since then, in my prayer times, I'll pray in tongues. Or sometimes in worship, I'll worship in tongues. And it's a, it's a prayer or it's a worship language. According to the Bible, it says you're declaring mysteries in a foreign language. That language could be an earthly language or it could be an angelic language. I could, we, in the talk I did a few, few, a few weeks ago, we talked about, I gave examples of where it has been both. I, I believe in the gift of tongues, very powerful. The Holy Spirit comes to, gives us power to speak prophetically, not pathetically, prophetically. Acts chapter 2, 17, quoting Joel's prophecy. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Say all people. Does that mean you? How many people reckon all equals you? Wow. So this is a Bible verse for you all. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Isn't that amazing? that we should be expecting to be prophetic people, hearing God speak, not just about the future, but about the now, speaking into our lives. You should expect to have dreams, visions. Wake up in the morning, wow. And it wasn't just because you had too much cheese in the pizza the night before. There was something in that dream. God, what are you saying? God wants to speak to you about national issues. God wants to speak to you about community issues. God wants to speak to you for your church. God wants to speak to you for you. God wants to speak to you for your family. God is a speaking God. Are you listening? The Holy Spirit has come to equip you to be prophetic and hear his voice. Here's an example of it. Acts eleven twenty eight. Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. Here a prophet spoke up and said, God's saying there's going to be a famine. This was the kind of rise to arms call for the church. And they all start gathering aid and supplies and they made provision for the poorest of the poor ahead of the famine hitting. And indeed it did hit and the church was prepared. Billy Graham, in the lead up to JFK's assassination, you can read this in his autobiography, Billy Graham says that those two weeks ahead of JFK's assassination, he had a deep, deep concern for the safety of John F. Kennedy. To the point where on two times he phoned and left messages for him saying, don't make the trip. God speaks. When we bought our building, our first building in Leith in 2003, that was the year I left architecture and gave myself full time to ministry. It was an important year for the church. We had about 50 people in the church then. And we, I, I sensed that 
it was Easter time, I remember distinctly, God spoke into my heart and said, this summer you're going to find your first building. My heart leapt. And that's when we found Leith and we started the legal proceedings and we, we moved in in 2004 at the beginning of the year. God spoke that. God can prepare you ahead of times. And I want us to be sensitive and hearing God. There's been a lot of prophecies over for us as a church. Here's one that I received last, last week. As you know, last week I was down in Lancaster. Did anyone miss me? Good three of you did, that's great. Thank you. Uh, and they're speaking at a church down there and at a leaders event as well. And at the church down there, the, one of the elders at the end of the service came and brought this prophecy over myself and Owen, who's with me, and Yaki. And he said this, God says, I will give you wisdom to multiply. He will equip you and help you to put the things in place that are necessary for growth. You know, if, if you know what we're going through just now, you would see that is so accurate. We have reached hundreds, but you will reach thousands over the next two, three years. Amen, God. Yay. So I'm encouraged. This morning, I got another prophecy in from a guy in America. And he had randomly come to one of our prayer gatherings on Friday night, and he, he brought a prophecy over the church that, it, that was three months ago and has since been fulfilled. So I emailed him to say, just so you know that what you prophesied has been fulfilled. And he emailed me back this morning, comes on some earth, unearthly air when I was getting ready for this message. And he was talking about the growth that's just about to come upon us as a church. Wow. Kind of sounds like God's saying a few things. It's exciting. The Holy Spirit gives us power to speak while under pressure. Acts chapter four, verse eight. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and the elders of the people. And he went on. That wasn't a speech, right? <laughs> okay, let's be finished. I'm off. Uh, no, he, he went on from there and he kind of had this phenomenal defense he gave in front of the, the Jewish leaders. But this is exactly what Jesus said. It was by the Holy Spirit they had the confidence and the eloquence to be able to speak and refute the people in that moment. High pressure environment. He was, he was being, he'd been arrested for preaching about Jesus in the city and he was facing potential execution. And with confidence and with the power of the Holy Spirit, he gave witness and he was freed. Jesus said this would happen. Luke 21, 12 to 15. They will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. And this will result in you being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you, def- how you will defend yourself. For I will give you the words and the wisdom so that none of your adversaries will be able to resist you or contradict. Isn't that amazing? Now, this is not your excuse for not preparing, okay? I, I, don't, I don't take that as my excuse not to prepare sermons and just turn up and, all right, the Holy Spirit, just do it. I think God can prepare you weeks in advance as well as two minutes before. But I think this is specifically talking about the persecuted Christians, people in environments where their backs are against the wall and the real pressure is on them. And in that moment, God will give you the words to say. How many people have been in situations where your back's against the wall and God has given you words to say? Thank God. Isn't that the best? He equips you. The Holy Spirit gives us guidance on mission. Acts 8, 29. The Spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Now you don't understand how big that was. Philip had just been in Samaria. Samaria was experiencing a revival. Philip was preaching 
Thousands were coming to have faith. Many were being miraculously healed. It was a hothouse. Exciting stuff was taking place. And in the middle of that revival, the Holy Spirit says, now leave that and go into the wilderness. You think, man, I want to be there. That's, all, that's where it's all happening. And you want me to go to the wilderness? So he, and he goes into this wilderness, and in the middle of the wilderness is this chariot. And the Holy Spirit says, now go over to the chariot. And there in the middle, in that, middle of that wilderness was this guy in a chariot. He was an Ethiopian eunuch. And he happened to be reading Isaiah 53, where it's talking about Jesus. And he, Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, how, how can I until, until someone explains it to me? And Philip joined him in the chariot and explained to him all about Jesus. The Ethiopian shoved the handbrake on, got out of the chariot and said, I need to get my life right with God. He gave his life to Jesus, got baptized. And thus the gospel landed in a continent called Africa. 2,000 years later, by the year 2000, there were 380 million Christians on Africa. That's an out-of-date statistic. We're now 2010. Churches have been growing rapidly since then. But by the year 2000, there was 380 million Christians in Africa. Go to the chariot and stay near it. Dead simple, huh? But a continent is impacted. The Holy Spirit will give you guidance on mission. The Holy Spirit will give you guidance on mission. Acts 13, 2. When they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. Just a wee aside here. Prophecies should never come as a surprise to you, incidentally. If they do, question whether they're valid. Because typically, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. If you're walking with God, he'll be shaping your heart and you'll be hearing what he's saying and a prophecy will only confirm what's already there. Notice it says, set aside Barnabas and Paul, Saul, to the work to which I have called them. They already knew they were called. This wasn't them hearing they were called. This was confirming they were called and this was them hearing this is the time. So they were commissioned and and they were sent out. This, This is the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys. One of three recorded in Acts and church history tells us there was more. But these missionary journeys, if you read the book of Acts, they made colossal impact in the major urban centers in that area, that whole region in the Roman Empire. He made a huge impact. It began with the Holy Spirit saying, go, it's time to go, now go. We've experienced this in, our, in a smaller way with, with what we're doing. I remember being in a prayer meeting in Glasgow. And at that prayer meeting, we were I was there with Andrew Owen and a number of the other leaders from our churches. We were praying for Europe, praying for some of the cities in Europe, asking that God would start churches and raise up missionaries and do great things all around Europe. We prayed, took some time praying for Scotland and for England. And we're praying for Scotland. We started praying for Inverness. As we started praying for Inverness, I felt deeply stirred that Bill and Izzy, who were in our church in Edinburgh, should go to Inverness and start a church there. Now, Bill was cool. He looked like Jesus, right? goatee beard, ponytail, the whole deal, looked like Jesus. He was the first guy in our church. We figured if we can get a guy who looks like Jesus to come to our church first, it's bound to be a winner. So Bill was the first guy in our church. And in that prayer meeting, I heard, it's time for Bill to go to Inverness to start a church. So anyway, I just, I just, that thought came and I thought it was from God. At the end of the prayer meeting, Andrew Owen came up to me and said, Peter, as we were praying for Inverness, I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me and say, Bill and Izzy have got to go to Inverness. And I said, I got that as well. So we broke the news to Bill. <laughs> and uh, Bill went and took that thought to God and 
God confirmed it to him and Izzy as well. So they're up there. Churches began going well, making an impact up there, destined for greatness. It's exciting. Church started by the Holy Spirit. Dunfermline, which started a couple of weeks ago, is a very similar sequence of events. We had a prophecy telling us that people would reach to us from the north and the south of Edinburgh. And there, short, about a month after getting that prophecy, and, sorry, the prophecy said that and the churches would be started. About a month after getting that prophecy, some folks started coming to our church from, from Dunfermline. Shortly after that, we started home groups there, and we had three home groups running. And then three or four weeks ago, we launched them out as their own church, and they're having weekly services now. Isn't that amazing? The Holy Spirit. Acts 16, 6 to 10. The Holy Spirit gives us guidance and mission. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phygera and Galatia. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia, when they came to the border of Mysa, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus, notice, Spirit of Jesus and Holy Spirit used interchangeably, would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysa and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Here's where Europe gets the good news. We notice the Holy Spirit not just saying, go here. We also see the Holy Spirit saying, don't go there. Interesting. And I want to encourage us to be a people who are sensitive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Hearing the Holy Spirit go there, say go there is just as important as hearing the Holy Spirit saying, don't go there. How many times would we have overted disasters had we just have listened to the Holy Spirit? Or should I say, how many times, how many countless disasters could have happened in our lives, but because of the Holy Spirit's guidance in our lives, we were diverted from them? I want to say, be sensitive to that still small voice of God. Typically, I have found that the Holy Spirit never shouts at me. That's usually the devil. When the devil speaks, it shouts. He shouts. I hear accusations and temptations and fears and anxieties and irrational thoughts and little words becoming big mountains. And You know what I'm saying? Anyone experience that? It comes like torments. Every direction all at once. It tries to confuse you. It's not the voice of God. That's the traits of the devil. Or sometimes it's your own insecure subconscious. But it's one or the other. It's definitely not God. My experience has been that the voice of God comes so still and gentle. Elijah describes it as the still small voice. We see it described in the prophets as, you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. But my, I've, I've witnessed that that is the voice of God. God speaks gently. And yet he says, go and stand beside a chariot. And that gentle voice impacts confidence. That gentle voice spoke the world into being. Hear that voice. Be sensitive to that voice. The other day there, Becky and Michael were having prayer time with Angie. And Angie said, right, we're going to pray. And then, kids, we're going to listen to God. Because it's important to not just talk to God, but listen to what God wants to say. So after praying, she said, we're going to sit in silence. That was a risk. So she tried it. And then she, the first miracle was they managed to sit in silence for 10 minutes. That was a miracle. There's something like that. <laughs> and at the end of that, she said, so what did God say? And Becky said, God gave me the names of two people who used to be in our church and I haven't seen them for a while. And Angie said, well, I think we should contact them. And Becky was getting baptized about a week or so after that. That was what, just before Becky got baptized, a month and a half ago or something. So we wrote an email to that 
those couple and said, we've really missed you at church. Do you want to come to see Becky get baptized? And they started coming back to church because Becky got that word from God. Isn't that great? You've got to hear the voice of God. The Holy Spirit causes unusual things to happen. Acts 8, 39. When they came up out of the water. Okay, this is back to the Ethiopian eunuch. He's given his life to Jesus. He's got baptized. He's coming out of the water now. It says, when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing and a little bit freaked out. Have you just read that verse? Have you read that verse? That's nuts. Philip was there one moment talking to the guy about Jesus. And then next moment, bing, gone. Whoa. Back to Ethiopia to tell Africa about this kind of God. Amazing. That's just nuts. It says it. He says he just, bing, gone. And he reappeared. You read on, he reappeared in another place where he was on a mission. I mean, that would really save in travel expenses. <laughs> I mean, that is nuts. But do you know what? Honestly, I believe in a God who can do that. I believe in a God who can do those sorts of things. I have an expectation that God can do anything like that anytime he pleases. You can't manufacture that. But God just does that to mess with our heads a little bit and to get glory. That's amazing. This is the same God who in Acts causes people to miraculously release from prisons. Jail doors flying open, chains falling off their hands, walking out as if the guards weren't even there. This is the same God who supernaturally brought judgment against an ungodly, self-glorifying ruler called Herod. God struck him. This is the same God who does great miracles. This is the same God who, when Paul was shipwrecked on an island, that snake jumps out of the bush, latches onto his wrist, a venomous snake, and the natives are watching to see Paul drop dead. And he doesn't. Our God does great things. And some of the great things he does have no previous precedent in the Bible. But the safety zone is this, they all bring glory to Jesus. Paul gives a summary of some of the things that we see in Acts, but he also goes on and unpacks some of the other things. And in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He says, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit, the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit to another gifts of healings by that one spirit to another miraculous powers to another prophecy to another distinguishing between spirits to another speaking in different kinds of tongues to still another the interpretation of tongues these are all the working of one and the same spirit who gives to each one just as he determines here we see nine gifts recorded some of them we've seen examples of in the book of acts just there but here are the nine gifts First of all, we see the gifts reflect, and I believe this talks about how we become like Jesus, how we can learn to think and speak and act like Jesus by his spirit. First of all, we see thinking like Jesus. We see word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and distinguishing between spirits. It's when you don't know what you need to do, you don't know what you need to say to someone, yet God gives you a word of wisdom that's just so timely for that person. Or it's when God, in his omniscience, he knows everything gives you a little segment of knowledge that he already knew, but he gives it to you now about a situation or a person. So sometimes in the services you hear 
someone's got this condition or someone's got that situation in their lives and they come forward and they're healed. Or it's distinguishing between spirits. We're in a world where it's not just neutral. It's not just God. There's God and there is his angels, sure. But there is also the devil, a fallen angel. And there are demons who are fallen angels. They're they're evil spirits looking to undermine human beings. In this kind of world, you need to have discernment, distinguishing between spirits. So that's thinking like Jesus did. And the Holy Spirit comes to equip you to live like Christ. Secondly, he comes to equip you to talk like Christ. So here we see prophecy, tongues, and interpretation. We've talked about some of those earlier. And then we see that Holy Spirit has come to equip you to act like Christ. And there we see faith, healings, and miraculous powers. And I believe that Jesus says to you, the things I've done, you can do. The book of Acts proves that. The disciples lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will never leave you. And he was so right. He was working with them, doing great things. So I want to encourage you to be people who see the power of the Holy Spirit. How do you, see, how do you live naturally, supernatural? Number one, know that it's not a show. Let love be your motive. After talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, Paul goes on in the next chapter and talks about love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 and onwards. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to move mountains, but don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but do not have love, I gain nothing. See, the miraculous things and the supernatural happenings are not there to make you look great or you feel great. It's not a show. It's an expression of love to other people. Someone said that um, the compassion is the breeding ground for the miraculous. And we see this in the life of Jesus. We see Jesus moved with compassion, healing the sick. So often we see that. He was moved with compassion and he healed them. That's how he did things. You see, Jesus, there were times when he healed someone and it didn't kind of go, okay, and it kind of makes it look all jazzy and everything. And wow, look at that. What do you all think then? He didn't do that. Oftentimes he would take the person out of the city, heal the guy, and he said, don't tell anyone. (laughs) Nuts. Why did he do that? Because for him it wasn't a show. For him it was an expression of love. You see, when you see someone in a predicament, you say, I hate what they're going through. Then you're in a perfect moment to see a miracle. Now translate that into prayer. Reach to God and get your hands on them. I wish, God, you could give me wisdom to help that person through that situation. One word from you would change it all, God. Give me that word, God. Love is the motivation. Second thing you can do to move in the supernatural is know that your faith, it's your faith, not your performance that moves God. Peter Petorius preached from this verse when he was here. Galatians 3 verse 5. Does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, does God do those great miracles among us because you're so good and you deserve it? Or does God do those things because you trust in him? And because he's so good. That's right. God moves among us, not because we're so good. If it was based on our morality, not one of us, only myself and Ken Ross, 
would see the miracles. The rest of you all wouldn't have a chance. I'm kidding you on. Ken wouldn't be there. Okay, it takes faith to see God move. Not one of us qualifies based on our morality. And you might think, well, my past totally disqualifies me from moving the miraculous. Some of you might be sitting here thinking, my last week disqualifies me from moving the miraculous. But I want to say, your acceptance before God, your place in heaven, your ability to move in the miraculous has zip all to do with how good you are. It has absolutely everything to do with Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for you and your response by faith to him. Faith is my responsibility. It's my response to his ability. Thirdly, live for his agenda, not yours. Mark 16, 20, then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. This is them having been commissioned to go. And the Lord worked with them, confirming his word with signs that accompanied it. Notice, they were giving themselves to God's agenda. And as they gave themselves to God's agenda... God backed them up. The Bible talks about signs and wonders following those who have believed. It doesn't say that believers should go following the signs and wonders. Don't go hunting for miracles. Set yourself to do the will of the Lord, to love people, to share with them the love of God. And as you do that, he will endorse that message. He will back you up. He will change people's lives. Fourthly, Live a prayer-saturated life. The day of Pentecost was a big day. It was a day where many prophecies were coming together. We see Joel's prophecy, in the last day I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, fulfilled on Pentecost. We see Jesus' prediction, wait in Jerusalem and you will receive power from on high. It was fulfilled on Pentecost. And yet, John Stott talks about the needs, even though the provinces were there, there was still a need for prayer. He said this, God's promises do not render prayer superfluous. On the contrary, it is only God's promises that give us both the warrant to pray and the confidence that he will hear and answer our prayers. When God promises, then that's your opportunity to have confidence when you pray. That's your opportunity to step out and lay hold of those promises and call on God to do it through you. I want to encourage you this Friday uh, in the Gorgie campus here at 7 to 8 in the morning. The prayer team are going to be here. A handful of folks are going to be calling on God and praying for the weekend ahead, not just for the Easter weekend outreaches, but also for the Shine Youth Outreach in Gorgie here. Also, Friday evening down in Leith, we've got our encounter event. Come along. It's an opportunity not just to pray for the city and for the other churches in the city. It's also an opportunity for you to be prayed for. If you've never been baptized with the Holy Spirit, if you want to see the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating in your life, it's a great opportunity to be prayed for and ministered to at our Friday night encounter event at 7 o'clock in Leith. In conclusion, if you're to define the word supernatural in the dictionary.com, it defines it as follows. It says, above and beyond what is natural, unexplainable by natural law. For us, supernatural is supernatural. But I want to say for God, it's just normal. When Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, 9 to 10, he said, this, is then, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Now, what does that mean? Well, often in the Greek, they put parallel statements beside each other. They make a statement and then they define what the statement means by the next statement. So he says, your kingdom come. 
This is what it means. Your will be done on earth as it will be done in heaven. The definition of your kingdom come is your will be done on earth as it will be done in heaven. In other words, God, let your realm invade our realm. Let your ways become our ways. And I want to tell you, there's no sickness in heaven. There's no dis-ease in heaven. There's no lack of peace in heaven. There's no suffering in heaven. And we're living in a time where we're, we're still impacted by the realities of a world around us. This reality of this world with sicknesses and what the doctors tell us and seeing people's lives ruined and people being devoured by Satan and people making bad decisions and living in consequences, that's the hurting world we're living in. And you know what? It touches us all. And in one sense, it's a reality. But the good news is we can live in a supernatural reality. Our future is there. And God's mandate on us is for that kingdom, that realm, to become the realm that we actually start to experience even before we get there. That what we consider supernatural will become the norm. That miracles would be commonplace in your lives and in this church. That's what God intends for the body of Christ. John G. Lake said the miracle realm is man's natural realm. He is by creation the companion of the miracle-working God. Sin dethroned man from the miracle-working realm, but through grace he is coming into his own. It has been hard for us to grasp the principles of this life of faith. In the beginning, man's spirit was the dominant force in the world. When he sinned, his mind became dominant. Sin dethroned the spirit and crowned the intellect. But grace is restoring his spirit the spirit to the place of dominance. When man comes to realize this, he will live life in the realm of the supernatural without effort. We want to be naturally supernatural, incredible, just like Jesus was. We want to be truly charismatic without any weirdness because I reckon Jesus was very, very cool and yet very, very supernatural. The only thing that could have offended you about Jesus was the truth he stood for. There's no kind of weird idiosyncrasies about the guy. No kind of quirky twitches or funny things going on. He was just kosher as it comes. And yet, utterly supernatural. And that's what God is calling us to live. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the examples the book of Acts gives us. God, it it really just raises the bar. It just kind of sets a whole new level of what is possible. God, I pray that tonight we don't want to just hear truths from the Bible. We want to let those truths become realities in our lives. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, that you're here. Thank you, Father, you're here by your Spirit. And because you're here, we thank you that all things are possible. Tonight, God, I ask that you heal the sick. Tonight, I pray you would lift up those who are downcast and depressed. I pray tonight, God, that long-standing ailments would cease from this moment onwards. I pray that people would see real breakthroughs miraculously in their bodies tonight. God, I pray for people to be filled with your Holy Spirit tonight. I pray, God, that those who haven't yet committed their lives to you tonight would make that choice. Just while we're in God's presence, 
we're not going to rush this moment. You've heard a lot of stuff tonight. I just want to encourage you to take time just to process that for a few moments. It's going to take a couple of minutes just in God's presence. Think about what you've heard. It might be tonight that you're far from God. In a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to give your life to Jesus. If you've never made that decision, in a few moments, I'm going to give you the opportunity to think about what you're going to do there. But for all of us, let's respond just now. Just while the music is playing, just think about what you've heard. Pray back your response to God. service, we're going to give opportunity for as many of you as want to be prayed for, you can come forward and be prayed for if the the leaders can come forward as well and pray with me but before we do that let's just continue in an atmosphere of prayer if you're here tonight and you know that you're far from God you know that that Jesus died for you on the cross but you've never really committed your life to him then just now I want to give you the opportunity to make that decision you heard earlier that whoever believes in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and whoever can confess with their mouth that Jesus you're my Lord that you'll be saved so I'm going to give you the opportunity just now if you're here and you're saying Peter I haven't been living for God but I want to from now on I believe that Jesus died and rose again I want to make him Lord of my life. If that's you, then I invite you just to very simply pray this prayer with me just now and let this be your commitment to him. Repeat this after me, just quietly under your breath. This is between you and God. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your incredible love for me. Thank you for loving me so much that you were willing to die for me. Jesus, I believe you took my place and died on my behalf. I believe on the third day you came alive again. And I believe you're alive right now. Come into my life. Forgive me, cleanse me, give me a new start. Today I choose from this day forward to follow you. And I declare you to be my Lord my boss my leader thank you so much for hearing my prayer and for accepting me tonight as your child here's why we'll continue praying I want to pray for anyone who made that decision if you prayed that prayer with me there and that was your decision I'd love the privilege of praying for you 
and asking God to bless you as you embark in this new life with him. In order to know who I'm praying for, just very simply, while everyone else is praying, can you just quickly raise your hand and let me know I prayed that prayer. Then put it down again. Is there anyone like that tonight? Thanks. 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 Anyone else? You prayed that prayer. Just quickly raise your hand. Dear God, thank you so much for these three precious individuals who tonight have said yes to you. In their heart, they made a choice. They put their faith in you, I pray. Thank you that you've heard their prayer. I pray from this day forward, they will walk with you. They will live for you. And you will empower them by your spirit. God, I pray, let them know your embrace and your acceptance in this moment. Thank you, you love them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, let's stand to our feet. We're gonna worship just to close this service.